From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. First and foremost, our lead story today. Um, A transport truck driver hits an overpass in North Vancouver. We'll get into the fact that he is, quote, missing. But more than anything, it is becoming far too frequent across the lower mainland where truck meets overpass. More than 20 since mid-2021. So to talk about this, the president and CEO of BC Trucking Association, Dave Earl, kind enough to join me. Dave, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Well, let's get into this because it's real easy to point fingers and to, you know, just say, you know, what a bunch of idiots, for lack of a better phrase. But the reality is, is we have to go back to the training. We have to go back to the understanding of how, uh, you know, high a truck is. Is everybody getting the proper training or is this a part of the problem? Uh, it's a great question, Rob, and, I, and the answer is, is since we really took a look at and developed a national training standard for commercial truck driver training uh, and implemented it in BC, I'm confident that people are getting the training. What worries me is what, what's happening in the field. I mean, first and foremost, I'm a little concerned that the driver hasn't turned up. Um, that's concerning because as much as somebody leaves the scene of an accident, that's a bad decision. And we all know that. I mean, that's drilled into us. Um, I hope that he's okay. Um, You know, I hope that he realizes that even if you make a mistake and something goes wrong, it'll be okay. There's no reason, you know, to to run away and and, and harm yourself, frankly. So I I hope everything turns out on that one okay. Mm When I look at this this one, uh, this particular incident, and the one incident before that in most people's memories down at Highway 99, um, what we're learning and what we've been saying all along is share the results, talk about the investigation, share what's happening. There's more to it. It's not necessarily that people are just loading things up and saying, yippee, and off we go. Things happen. So when we look at the, the incident last time on Highway 99, that truck made it through the tunnel, but something happened between the tunnel and the overpass. So what happened? And that's part of the investigation. What's going on? What went on? What struck the overpass? How did this occur? When I look at this one, and I, I, like everybody else, you look at the pictures online, I don't have any other insight. But I look at it and say, well, there's a wide load sign hanging off the back of the trailer that tells me that somebody along the line say, you know, this is a big load. We're going to have to do something. So the question becomes, what happened? What were the dimensions? What was the equipment choice? Was a permit pulled? All of those things come into play. Um, you know, and then ultimately, where, was the, where did the, the mistake, where did the error happen? And that's why we're, we're really keen to work with the ministry to say, like, what's going on? Mm. Is it a training issue? Is it an implementation issue? Like, like, what's happening here? Because there's way too many of these things happen. You know, David, look at the reports, uh, everything from April 2023 back into the middle of 2022. And the cause when it comes to a majority of these, and I'm just going to read them straight off the list here, excavator mm-hmm. bucket not loaded, uh, excavator mm-hmm. attachment lot lowered, uh, driver failed to follow the approved route, the arm not mm-hmm. lowered, the equipment not lowered. So we're starting now to see a bit of a trend here. Um, and, and I guess my question to you on this, Dave, is, is there something within the vehicle, an electronic device that can say, hey, by the way, you're a above said height and you need to go out there and lower this like is there a mechanism that could help diffuse some of these situations yeah unfortunately not because what we're talking about is loading equipment and so it really relies on the individual who's loading it to take the measurement it can be as simple as using a measuring tape there's a whole bunch of other devices laser levels laser measures all these things they're really easy they're inexpensive and it's something that's happening 
way too often, and that's that question is, well, why? You know, what's happening? What we see a lot of the times when you look at the history is a lot of the moves that are happening where these the excavators aren't being secured properly, it's the owner of the excavator moving it. And so they may not necessarily have that training. Yes, they'll have the commercial driver training, but they may not have that other training that comes into in terms of securing a load and what that looks like. So there's gaps, you know, and we're starting to learn more about what those gaps are. And then now the question is, great, how do we fix it? Well, that's definitely a question. And, you know, I was really impressed with how you made sure that the safety of the driver in the North Shore was paramount to this conversation. And I agree with you wholeheartedly. Let's move beyond his safety, hoping for Mm -hmm. the best. Um, Mm -hmm. Obviously, there's going to be questions that he'll have to answer or she'll have to answer, depending on who this was. But obviously, the owner of the company is going to have to be answering some questions as well. What would that look like when Transport Canada finally picks up the phone or goes out to visit this person? Yeah, and so what will end up happening, it'll be Commercial Vehicle Safety Enforcement, CDSC, our provincial agency that will go visit them and have a question. And it'll be exactly what we, we start off with. What was the call? What was the move? What were you? What were the dimensions provided to you? What safety protocols do you have in place? What do you have to make sure that the measurements are being taken? How did you assign the driver? How did you assign the equipment? Like literally, it'll be a reexamination of when that phone call came in to say, "Hey, I've got to move this piece of equipment from point A to point B." It'll be an examination of every decision that was made right from when that phone call came in to be able to determine and say, "Okay, this is where things went sideways." And at that point, and this is where we rely on the investigation that CBSE does, is to say, are we talking about a systemic issue across industry? Are we talking about a systemic issue inside an employer and inside a company? Was it a discrete incident? If it was discrete, how are the systems in place to prevent that from happening? So there's always something to learn here. Uh, And we certainly will be looking forward to, to figuring out exactly what's happened. Yeah, it's an interesting situation, and I appreciate you coming out here and being so candid, Dave. Let's continue the conversation, and thank you for making yourself available today. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Rob Fayan for Jill. Good afternoon. 34 minutes after 12. Some sobering news in the newscast. And uh, to the families of those firefighters that lost their life, our thoughts go out to you today. You know, when it comes to travel, there's only one person that I ever want to talk to to get my best bets and know where I can go and some of the things that are going on in the world of travel. Claire Newell stopping by the president from Travel Best Bets. Claire, good afternoon. Oh, thanks for that, Rob. It's great to chat with you. And there's some kind of cute news about YVR. I thought I would share with. I have to tell you, I've traveled with my little guy. Um, For those who kind of follow along, um, I have an eight and a half pound really cute uh, Chihuahua named Joey, and we often go back and forth just just on short trips. He he goes in the cabin with us, and um, it's when I'm going down to see my parents who snowboard down in Arizona. Um, but one of the things that I find is when I travel with him, I'm more chill. Mm-hmm. And the airport has recently announced, and I love the name of it. It's called Lassie, like a dog. You know the dog Lassie. <laughs> yes. Less airport stress initiative. And I think this is such a great program. I did mention it a a few weeks back, but what they've brought back is their therapy dog program to help just relieve some of the stress and anxiety that sometimes comes with flying, especially these days with full flights, long lineups and Mm -hmm. lost luggage. Um, What they've done is they've worked with St. John Ambulance's dog therapy program. So the dogs are gonna be hanging around 
at YVR's domestic terminal on just a, just three days at the moment, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays between 11 a.m. and 1 p.m. So if you're ever going, it's, pre, it's pretty. those are pre, pretty busy days, um, and you get to just chill with the dogs. I can't think of anything better other than maybe having my coffee at the, at the gate as well. I will <laughs> say a guilty pleasure, and the Hotel Vancouver right next to this building does it. They have a dog in the lobby, so when you arrive, there's this 15-year-old lab that's just kind of laying there, and it makes you feel like you're home. I think there's something really special about a dog, so I think this is a really smart initiative from YVR. Yeah, I think so as well. They've got some really great initiatives um, for for helping all types of situations if you are anxious to fly, and you can check it all out, uh, it all out at yvr.ca. It's a really, really useful website, not only for finding out if your flight's on time and that type of thing, but just a reminder for those who are going through that airport, you can also book your YVR Express for security lineup appointments, and you can uh, do that 72 hours before your flight, and especially if you don't have Nexus, take advantage of this. There's three lineups, Nexus, um, and all the trusted travelers that get, get to go through that, if you're lucky enough to have Nexus, the ones who have done this and received their QR code from booking the appointment, and then the regular lineup. And I can tell you, you want the first two. <laughs> okay, so we've got that out of the way. And now I want to get to some of the lesser, uh, you know, the bad news, if you will. There's a new data revealing that the CTA on average has faced more than 3,000 complaints per month over the last year. And I just want to know, Claire, from your perspective, I know that the government last April donated, or I shouldn't say donated, but gave a lot of money to the CTA to get up to speed to address all these complaints. Is that basically because now they've got enough people to take the complaints? Is that why that number's up? I don't know. This is insane, though. 57,000 complaints. That's the backlog. I mean, it's just it, it's it's just so much higher than it even was when they announced that they were going to be putting nearly $76 million in funding. It was set to be delivered over three years, but it was to hire more employees, put in AI technology, and it, they said it was going to significantly increase the agency's ability to process these complaints. They're getting 3,000 complaints a month. Hmm. I mean, I'm not really surprised, but there's supposed to be you know new initiatives coming in at the end of this month that will help maybe automize it. I'd, I, I'm not exactly sure, but all I can think of is that if you have a complaint and you're putting it in, it was supposed to be between 12 and 14 months when the the backlog was at around the 40,000 some odd complaints. Now it's like wow. literally, a, the wait's going to be even longer. I, I, I just, I kind of can't believe it, but here we are. Yeah, it, it, it's frustrating. So for those people that are looking for answers, it's uh, on the horizon, but that horizon is significantly away. Here's yeah. one that doesn't surprise me, Claire, because I think it's got to be one of, if not the most stressful job around, air traffic controller. And right now there's a pretty significant shortage in the United States. They need more than 3,000 controllers and it's affecting flights and airports. Yeah, it's affecting a ton of them. And airlines are getting involved in weighing in, saying this is how ridiculous this is. They're selling flights. JetBlue CEO said, we're selling flights we can't even fly due to the air traffic controller shortage. But it's not just in the U.S. It's here in Canada. It's around the world. Again, those positions that need training and um, it's expensive to go to school for it. But this type of position is so needed and it's a really stressful job. Like they say it's one of the most stressful in the world, um, but it, and it takes a certain person. So I really hope that they will get this under control. They, I know that there are airports in 
particularly the New York area. So the LaGuardia Airport, JFK, um, which are hubs for JetBlue and some of the other airlines, they um, they chopped their flights by 10%, and it's still affecting them. Hmm. So it's it's going to cause all sorts of ripple effects. It's going to cause flight delays. It's going to cause flight cancellations. It's going to cause airlines to drop routes to those airports that are most affected. And I don't see it getting um, better anytime soon. It's this shortage I see for years, wow. unfortunately, Rob. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I want to finish with some good news. Claire, you always bring me the good news. Let's talk deals right now because people, are, they've still got that itch. Even though inflation's at 4%, they still want to get out of Dodge. Where are you sending them? Um, well, the hot one right now is uh, an all-inclusive in Puerto Vallarta because the prices dropped below any that, anything that I've seen since the pandemic came out. If you can go between November the 16th and December the 11th. So obviously before the holiday rush, um, but air in seven nights in a four-star beachfront all-inclusive resort. $739. The taxes are $630, so almost the same, but that's uh, that one's flying off the shelf. The other one that people are really liking is Palm Springs, California. So it's, um, again, during that break prior to the holidays, so November the 19th with some dates and then again in early December, up to about December the 11th, but airfare and seven nights hotel with the airport transfers. Most don't do that. You mean you're getting an Uber, you're getting a cab or whatever, or mm. renting a car to get your, to your hotel. It also includes waived resort fees. And if you know what resort fees are, it's the one, those kind of charges that they get you at, at the accommodation once you've actually arrived that are over and above the taxes. So this is including the flight and four nights hotel again, $4.99 taxes of two ninety. Um, and do we have time for one more? Uh, if we're talking no. to cruise, we absolutely have time for one more. Okay. Yeah. A lot of people <laughs> missed out on these um, seven night Alaskas that sail round trip from Vancouver. And often, uh, more often than not, you will get a better deal because what happens is, is that groups are taken out at a deployment, they call it, when the, the uh, cruises are first announced. And once they sell out, it goes to what's called prevailing rates that are just what's in the marketplace. So if you take advantage now, you will save money for next year's uh, Alaska sailing. So seven night Alaska cruises from May 12th through until September the 15th, seven nights round trip from Vancouver, I'm seeing starting at $549. The taxes are 309. The earlier and later you go, the cheaper they'll be. And then over peak season, they'll pop up a bit. But there's still some really, really good peak season dates that are under a $700 mark. That's great. I mean, under 1000 per person round trip yeah. is a big deal. Claire, that's a great yeah. one to finish on. By the way, my parents just took that cruise oh. and had the time of their lives. Yeah, I know? loved my sailing. I thought I did it last year and I thought, oh, uh, you know, I take it for granted I live here. But I would do it year over year, over year, yeah. because it's so easy. Walk on and walk off the ship. Yeah, it's fun. Claire, thank you for this. It's always a pleasure to Thanks. talk. Thanks, Rob. Rob Faye in for Jill. Sorry, man, I got to hit the post. I've worked in uh, radio before. <laughs>
<laughs> Everybody's like, you going to talk? I'm like, yeah, hold on one sec. That music's got a little bit more bad to get through before we can start talking. Seven minutes after one o'clock in Vancouver. Thank you for making me a part of your afternoon. Rob Faye again in for Jill Bennett. I'll be here till three before we pass it forward to Jazz Joe Hall, who will get you home this afternoon. Well, you know what? I am guilty. I love Airbnb. Anytime I go on a vacation, one of the first things that I do is I go to the app and I see what's out there because maybe, just maybe, I can save some money or get a really cool experience. There's been a couple of places. I was down in Portland once and got a great little Airbnb that actually had a couple of kegs of beer when we arrived. And I said, oh, they've got the taps and everything. Well, the guy worked at a local brewery and that was one of the perks of staying at his residence was you could drink beer for free. And no, I'm not giving out the address. I'm just simply saying that that's one of the cool things about Airbnbs is you never know what's out there. But there's a new report out there suggesting that BC renters will now have to pay in addition to a licensing fee and Airbnb tax due to market pressures. To talk more about this, Torben Wieditz, the executive director of Fair Air Airbnb Canada Network. Uh, Torben, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks for having us. Well, it's my pleasure to have you guys. And one of the first things I want to get out from you is just the the basic question. What do you make of this tax? What do you make out of the Airbnb tax, you're meaning? Well, there's, you know, the BC renters may have to pay an Airbnb tax and simply because of the market pressures. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Uh, you know, let me start by saying that I that I uh, that I hear what you're saying. I think everyone we talk to loves Airbnb when they travel, when they're on vacation. But no one ever likes it when you have a full-time uh, commercial Airbnb next door or or right uh, above or below your your home. Um, you know that causes disruptions into your own daily life, into your ability to sleep on the weekend, into your ability to have your kids get up on time, and so on. But um, that said, you know, there is certainly a, a role for um, home sharing in, you know, in every place around the world, really, um, where people rent out their own homes when they're gone on vacation or when they are um, away on the weekend to make some extra money. And that is completely, um, you know, fair and, and everyone should be able to do this. What we see in BC, though, is that 10 um, percent of Airbnb's hosts are um, responsible for over 50% of Airbnb's revenue, and they control the majority of inventory on Airbnb's platform. That means that these homes have been uh, removed from the housing market, and those are housing units that were planned, approved, and built as residential homes for people to live in long-term and not as hotel inventory for platforms like Airbnb. So that presents a problem because... We live in a time where it is extremely difficult to find homes and to find housing, and housing is extremely expensive. If you remove, as the report shows, almost 17,000 entire homes from the market during a housing crisis, it drives housing costs up. And these costs are shouldered by uh, tenants and renters and homeowners across the province whether they use Airbnb or not. And that's a big problem, and I think we need to address that. So, Torben, you know, I'm going to try to play devil's advocate here for a second just for the sake of this conversation. I buy a property, and I'm allowed to rent it to somebody locally so that I can make some income off of that. What is the difference between somebody locally and somebody from abroad? I know that I'm helping the government solve their problem, but the reality is is that's the government's problem. That's not necessarily me as a homeowner. What would you say to that? Well, I, w- I would say to that that, um, you know, we have zoning um, bylaws and zoning restrictions in place for a good reason. There are some 
some uses that are not complementary to others. And that's why we have zoning, for example, that says, you know, you're okay to have a tourist accommodation, uh, bed and breakfast or a hotel on this street, but not in this neighborhood. And you should not have a hotel in your condominium building. Um, and that, that sort of, you know, relates back to what I said earlier that, you know, people love Airbnb when they're on vacation. But if you uh, have a full-time dedicated Airbnb next door and people are coming and going on a routine basis and you have transient folks coming and going, coming and going, partying on the weekend, uh, you will not like that fact, uh, you know, because it intrudes in your own ability to peacefully enjoy your own property and your own home. Um, so that's a big problem on the one hand. And then the other one is that it, uh, you know, goes counter to all the government policies and uh, objectives that we have, uh, you know, from the local communities all the way up to the province to ensure that we have homes and housing available for everyone that lives in the province, works in the province and uh, wants to be here. And if you can't find a place to live uh, you know, you cannot contribute to your local community. You cannot find a place to work. Uh, employers have a hard time retaining workers or attracting workers, and that, that's a huge problem. So, you know, I would say that, you know, there are limits to what people can do with their properties, and, you know, some of these limits are there for very valid reasons. You know what? You make some good points. I can't argue with you on all of them. I do think, though, that, you know, whether you bring in somebody who's an airbnb or somebody who's a renter, noise could essentially come from either. And I guess you have a little more control with one, one who's under a contract as a renter. But let's move forward, uh, Torben. One more question before we part ways, and I do appreciate this. A lot of people will say that this is just a, another tactic to bully Airbnb to finally get them out of Vancouver. I mean, I think of the licensing fees, now the potential for an additional tax. Is this just trying to suffocate Airbnb out of this region? Uh, I don't think so at all. I mean, even if you look at Airbnb's uh, own um, sort of marketing, they just released a report saying, you know, like that basically outlines the benefits to communities in BC. And and Airbnb itself is saying that 82% of their hosts rent out one home. I mean, we can argue what that actually means. Like, mm-hmm. is it their home or else's home? But let's just assume that 82% of Airbnb hosts are people that rent their own home every once in a while to make ends meet. Uh, and that is certainly something that is that we would support. But what Airbnb is not saying is that there are 10 percent that have been hoarding housing supply, uh, investment properties and have turned them, converted them into quasi hotels. Um, and that's what Airbnb is not talking about. But that's what we are talking about. So in many ways, we are not actually far apart. Like we are fully in uh, agreement that, you know, we should enable Airbnb to operate and to allow people to share their own home and to uh, make, you know, some generate some extra income. But we should not wholesale uh, contribute to conversion of residential housing stock into hotel inventory um, at no cost to a large company that, um, you know, doesn't even pay taxes in Canada. All fair points. Torben, thank you for your time today. Hopefully we'll keep this conversation going in the future. Sounds good. I'm looking forward to it. Take care. Rob Fane for Jill. Good afternoon. 35 minutes after 1 o'clock here on a Wednesday. You know, on Monday when I first hosted this show, 
One of the things that I brought up was the timing of Justin Trudeau's announcement when it came to the damning allegations that he had against the Indian government. And yesterday we switched gears and we talked about a few of the different angles. And then just last segment, I was talking about the fact that maybe the Trudeau government doesn't necessarily have to provide us with all of the information because of the delicate dance that has to be done when it comes to national security and the security of our own. So It's interesting just to get different perspectives on this because I've kind of bounced around on it just as we learn more about this and the the potential for politic as an element of this conversation. And to speak to this, and and a wonderful article that was written just the other day in the National Post, author and columnist Tasha Curitan. Tasha, good afternoon. Good afternoon to you. Well, you didn't hold back in an article that you put on the National Post. You talked about Trudeau, China, and who has the most to gain. So maybe walk me through this. Okay, so yeah, um, I also, when I saw the announcement, the first thing that struck me, honestly, was the timing of it, because the House of Commons came back on Monday. Everyone expected the conversation to revolve around inflation and housing, and the Liberals had the worst summer of their recent memory in terms of the polls, and those are the issues driving them into the ground. So the opposition was probably primed and ready for this. Instead, we got Trudeau making a essentially a speech like in the House of Commons. This is what, this is the first unusual thing about the killing um, that took place, which if, you know, if India was behind this and did orchestrate a, an actual murder of a citizen on our soil, that is a terrible thing. It, it is. There's no getting around that. Um, but the way he did discuss the, uh, the shooting of Nijar was in the House of Commons. He didn't, you know, issue a press release or do a, 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 um, a press conference or anything of that nature. So it was a very bold and very direct. And the language that was used was, however, not definitive. Um, you know, he didn't say that it was 100 percent that there, there was there was actual evidence of this. Um, he said that they were actively pursuing credible allegations of a potential link. So it was very vague. And it, what it made me think immediately was, well, you know, when Chinese interference hit the news, uh, what was criticized by the government, by Trudeau himself, was the fact that these were incomplete documents. Um, you know, we, we can't just go on partial, basically partial intelligence, doesn't tell the whole story. And here we, we don't have the whole story either. So I write, I thought, hmm, who, who wins here? And there's a lot of winners. And the chief one is the prime minister because he's changed the channel completely from what we expected to this, taking control of the agenda, got the opposition all singing the same song as well. And, and Jagmeet Singh, who loves the whole thing and will now never bring the government down. So if I was in the PMO, I'd be doing little high fives everywhere. Hmm. And and do you think that maybe the Conservatives saw this? I mean, Pierre Poliev said that Justin Trudeau came to him privately with the information that he was going to release in the House of Commons. But do you think that the Conservatives and Poliev in particular had enough time to make that kind of a pivot, knowing that this was going to happen in just a couple of hours? No, definitely not. Um, Those briefing books get written well before. Trust me, I worked for politicians, for ministers, (laughs) and you you know, you do your questions and answers in the morning early. uh, Now, a couple hours will not cut it. Um, the information was not, uh, had, had been brought to the attention of other parties, including the Five Eyes, including Modi himself. So it's not like it was the first time it was released to anybody. But in terms of an issue, nobody saw this coming. Really, nobody did in the press. And I'm sure the opposition did not expect it either to be the first, you know, day back. This is what we're going to talk about. No. 
Well, because it's all we're talking about right now. And, you know, it's interesting because right in the last paragraph of your story, which, again, I would ask a lot of our listeners to find on the nationalpost.com under the opinion category, is you said, and I'm going to quote you here, Canada needs to know what happened in that parking lot in Surrey, and whoever orchestrated it must pay the price. But you've got to hand it to the Prime Minister's office with one announcement, and you mentioned this already, they've changed the channel, raised Lazarus from the dead, and provoked an international incident. Whoever thought the Liberals were out of gas was sad mistaken. So you, uh, you basically are saying, hey, they're down 14 points in the poll. They need a Hail Mary. And this might have been it. This might have been there. Yeah, they're Hail Mary or they're deus ex machina. And, you know, pushback's been, well, Bob Fife gave them 24 hours and he was going to break the story. <laughs> well, I ask you, how did Bob Fife get his information? Do we know that? Who, who was the sort? We don't know. And if I was the government, well, I'm just saying, uh, if I wanted this to be out there, there's a million ways to get it out there. Um, and the other piece that's important here is because we've just started the inquiry into foreign interference, which is focusing on China, or at least was supposed to. This dilutes that significantly because now is going to be an inquiry, essentially. This is, this is going to be, you know, people are going to say, we have to look at this, too. Um, and it's not to say that there are other, no other actors interfering in our politics. Russia, the United States. I mean, it's, the list is very long. But China has been the main going concern. Who else benefits from this? Well, guess what else this whole announcement has done? It has completely annihilated the Indo-Pacific strategy that was unveiled just last November in an attempt to pivot, as hmm. all the Five Eyes are doing, to India as a supplier of goods, as a trading partner, as a strategic partner away from China. Well, that ain't happening with Canada now. Uh, so the Chinese have gained here, absolutely, because it's, it's, it's driven a stake into the heart of the image of India as well on the international scene as a reliable uh, democratic partner. It's a really interesting story. And Tasha, your article had me riveted. And I sat there and I said to our producers, we got to get him on because there's uh-huh. just so many different ways to look at this. And I thought you were able to do that so concisely and so well. And it just shows your experience having worked in, uh, in those circles. So Tasha, thank you for the time today. I'm going to use the other side of the break to chew on this a little bit more, but your time was valuable and hopefully we'll do this again. Well, thanks and chew away. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.